welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd bear the pain of prothecosis if you infected me with the idea that you missed this week's show. Legal Outlook for 2022. Gene Takagi returns for a mix of checklist items and emerging trends. It's a good time to look at big picture items like your HR investments, corporate docs, and financials. Also, though, what to look out for in crowdfunding, donor disclosure, data protection, and more. Gene is principal of the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group, NEO, and our legal contributor. On Tony's Take Two, 50% off planned giving accelerator. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn Co. It's always my pleasure to welcome back Gene Takagi to the show. You know who he is. It's almost, it's almost superfluous for me to, for, for me to do the intro, but, but Gene deserves it. He's uh, well credentialed, and I want to make sure that he gets his due introduction. Gene Takagi, our legal contributor and managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. He edits that wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com, which you should be following. And he is a part time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com, and he's at GTAC. Gene, welcome back. Great to be back, Tony. How are you? It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. And let's, so let's, uh, let's talk about the new year. Um, and just before we do, I want to remind folks that uh, not too long ago, uh, we have Gene's one-hour legal audit which you might want to look back at. That was uh, a, a sort of a condensed version of uh, some of what we're going to talk about today, although we have lots of new subjects to talk about today too, but there was the one-hour legal audit. And also uh, with Gene recently, risk management, part one, and then a different show, risk management, part two. So those are resources that you could look back at uh, just from a couple of months ago. And we'll go into... And, and those go into more detail on some of what we're going to talk about today. Gene, uh, where would you like to start for the new year? Throw it open. Throw, I throw it open to you. Where would you like to start with? So it, it does seem like kind of this chance at uh, restarting, getting re-energized and thinking about our organizations and where we want it to go. Um, yes, we have to keep in mind some of those um, risks that we talked about in, in previous shows, but we also have to think about kind of where we want to go, what, of our, what our dreams are, um, what our vision is for the organization, have we properly captured it, um, what is our mission, is, is that sort of properly captured, is everything, because our environment seems to be changing uh, week by week, it seems to be new stuff that comes up that we have to consider are we still on track with where we want to go? So having these sort of broader discussions, I, I like setting those organizational priorities uh, for the new year. Okay. Okay. Um, what would you, uh, what, what priority would you like to start with? 
Sure. So um, being the lawyer, I, I say, okay, let's talk about legal compliance just to make okay. sure we've got some systems in place. Okay. Um, mission and values, um, which we've frequently emphasized um, when we've had discussions about not just existing to further your mission, but to do it in a way that advances your values. And if equity and inclusion are part of those values, then you know that's something you should be thinking about as well. Yes. Definitely considering some of the trends that are out there, and I know we'll get into that a, a little bit um, later in the show, but it also including kind of the times that we're, we're, we live in and acknowledging that, yes, we're under the impact of COVID, which seems to be shifting constantly mm-hmm. uh, in both how it's affecting us and how we might need to respond to it. The great resignation, which certainly isn't completely unrelated to the COVID, but that is a huge trend and movement as we're trying to figure out how do we keep our workers? Are we burning them out? The mental health issues that are you know, hitting pretty much all of us um, from the isolation, the remote working, from the uncertainties of health, from sick family members and loved ones and yeah. all of that and saying, well, are we going to be able to keep our team together? Should we be keeping our team together the way we're working now? Do we need to shift our work practices? Do we need to shift what type of benefits we're giving to them? All of those things have got to be sort of raised. And I would say raised at the board level, you know, together with the executives and senior management team, let's like talk about it. Let's brainstorm, think about this and get what our organizational priorities are this year, because things can change rapidly. And rapid change, if you don't have any plans um, to anticipate some of them, don't have contingency plans, can force you into very, very stressful times where immediate actions are necessary, and you can sometimes make bad decisions if you're under that type of time stress. So then it, be- then it becomes a crisis. Right, exactly. And, and a crisis in staffing, especially knowing how hard it is to, to hire folks now, you know, you, you talked about, you know, keeping the team together or should we keep, should we keep the team together? But, you know, I'm sure you're seeing it with your clients, the, the, the difficulty in hiring, uh, you know, you want to, that, that, that's a, that's a huge factor in, you know, do we have the right team? Well, putting the right team together, is going to take a lot longer than it, it, it used to. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're talking about retention, you got to figure out what are you going to invest in this? I know you want to, you know, provide as much as you can to your beneficiaries, but if you're not really considering the team of people in, in you know, on your team that are providing those services, that are supporting those services, the whole thing can collapse. So just remember where your infrastructure and when your groundwork is and how important the human resources are. Um, in your organization to being able to deliver services and provide goods for your charitable mission. So really important not to neglect that. And that requires an investment both on retention. And if you aren't able to retain everybody and you need to recruit, you're going to have to be able to show what you're going to invest in those new employees and give them time to learn. You can't expect them to perform like experienced people have um, in the past. So it's, you know, some patience, um, and definitely investment in education, in training, in orientation, um, and all the rest. And uh, again, um, to the extent that your executive is probably also overwhelmed with everything else going on, the board is really pivotal in trying to be able to come up with plans that help invest in their teams. 
This goes to legal audit, the, the conversation we had a few months ago. You'd like to see a review of governing documents, too. Yeah, I, I, I always think that that's a great thing to check out in the new year. Just um, even if you have somebody, you know, up, up higher up, kind of a, a board member or your executive or senior manager, take a look at your articles and bylaws, even spending 30 minutes on it and saying, is our mission really reflected in, in these documents or have we evolved into something else and these documents are like stale and old and outdated now? In that case, those documents still rule. So if you had the IRS or a state regulator coming and audit you, if you're not performing within that mission statement in your articles and bylaws, you could be acting completely out of compliance. Uh, and worst case scenario, you can really threaten the organization through penalties, et cetera. So that's something to take a look at. Also, just take a look at a lot of organizations. I find out their their boards they're like, oh, you know, we forgot to elect them. You know, we, we, you know, we've had terms, you know, of two years, but they've been on for like 10 years and we're happy with them. So we just don't do elections. That can be really, really harmful uh, as well um, for multiple reasons. Um, but, you know, sit back, see what you're doing and what you're not doing consistent with your articles and bylaws. And if you need to change things, determine that you have to change. And if you need the help of a lawyer, try to find somebody that can help you with that. And there are some good resources on the web as well. What's, uh, what's one of the good resources? Um, a little bit of a self-plug because I'm a board member, but BoardSource has excellent resources on board of directors, governance, things of that nature. Stanford University also has excellent resources in terms of sort of template documents um, that are just a guide for nonprofits. It's not one size fits all, but it just gives you a general idea about how some things operate. Um, so those are just two good resources to look at. Okay. And, and again, we, we talked about this extensively in the, uh, the show called uh, Your One Hour Legal Audit. You have some, uh, last one, you have some financial performance advice for the new year? Yeah, well, I, I think probably um, most um, people take a look at their financials throughout the year um, on the board level and on the executive level. Um, but the new year, you've actually sort of completed your financials and they might not be um, in final form yet, uh, but you might have what some people call a pro forma set of financials, um, sort of close to final where you get to assess what you've done in the year it, you know, for, for most organizations, this goes without saying, but you want to make sure that you're performing in a way that you're not becoming insolvent. So you want to make sure what your balance sheet looks like and whether you have net assets. Um, if you don't have net assets, that means that you are either insolvent or you know, in the zone of insolvency. You have to think about how you're going to address that very serious issue. And I would say if you don't have internal expertise on dealing with it, get outside help right away if that's the case. But your your statement of revenues and expenses as well, are you sort of operating what people call in the black so that there is, you know, some net income in there? Or are you operating in the red where you're very concerned because you're losing money? Timing is always important. So it's misleading to look at one year in isolation because sometimes grants are given in one year, but they're actually um, uh, received in another year. So the timing issue can pose different challenges about reading financials. So you want to be able to read it sort of collectively uh, in through a multi-year period just to know where you stand. And again, if 
board members aren't able to help an executive and the executive feels like they need some help with understanding financials or reading financials, invest in everybody's training in this area. And there are a lot of people even pro bono, uh, that, that are offering this training pro bono and a lot of resources on the web. So um, make sure you understand your financials and what they're indicating. You don't need to know every single financial ratio that you know business people use, but just generally know, are you healthy financially? Or are you trending bad? And if you have several years where you're in the red, where you're not making money, it looks like you're bleeding money, then that might be indicative of some change that's necessary in order to make your organization sustainable on an ongoing basis. So again, you don't want to hit crisis mode financially. So this is a good chance. Take a look at your financials, not just last year, but over a multi-year period and see where you are. Get help if you need it. We have a show that I replayed, oh, I think within the past six months. Uh, the guest was Andy Robinson. So you could go to TonyMartinetti.com and just search his name, Andy Robinson. But it was something like teaching your board basic financials. And he wrote a book. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was published by Charity Channel uh, with, with a title similar to that. So if you – and – the show is uh, a few years old, but reading financial statements and, and balance sheets hasn't changed much in probably a hundred years. Um, so it's just all, you know, now, now, now it's all in Excel, but uh, so if you'd like some help with that, there is a, there is a show where Andy Robinson was the guest talking about your improving your board's financial literacy. It's time for a break. Turn to communications, your 2022 communications plan. Does it have lots of projects, lots of writing projects? You can get the biggest projects off your plate and outsource them. Free up staff time to devote to the work that it's not feasible to have others doing for you. Like the annual report, just because it's been done in-house in the past, doesn't mean it has to be done in-house this year. What about research reports, white papers, your other heavy lift pieces? Do you need help with writing projects in 2022? Turn to communications. Your story is their mission. Turn-to.co. Now back to Legal Outlook for 2022 with Gene Takagi. Okay, so let's talk about some trends. Then, Gene, you have a you have a case. Uh, we haven't talked about a uh, we haven't talked about an actual case for a while. Americans for Prosperity. Yeah, so um, that was a, a huge U.S. Supreme Court case, at least huge for the nonprofit sector, um, but with deeper implications for if I if I'm not. Uh, overhyping it for democracy itself. Um, so, um, so Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, who was the California Attorney General, basically was about the Schedule B disclosure of donors who donated um, more than five thousand dollars. So, for nonprofits um, who know how to prepare their Form nine nineties, you'll know that on Schedule B of your Form nine ninety, you're actually disclosing to the IRS. It's not public information. Um, but it's to the IRS, the name and address of your donors who donated more than $5,000. Uh, 
Now, that hasn't changed. You still have to disclose it to the IRS. But certain states, including California, where um, Bonte's from uh, as the attorney general, um, New York, I believe New Jersey, I believe Hawaii also included, um, all asked for a copy of the 990, including an unredacted Schedule B to be given to the state regulator because they also want to look at that information for state law compliance purposes. A lot of them are concerned about donors who give money but get something back in return that's not being disclosed. So if they ever have to have an investigation of that, that information turns out to be very helpful to the state to be able to say, ah, uh, they were giving money, but they also took in this huge benefit, this huge contract, for, for example, which, you know, reaped them millions of dollars. Um, so there was a, a, a legal case um, that went up through the courts, um, finally hit the U.S. Supreme Court, and the AG lost here, the California AG. Um, so the court decided, and we know the court's composition is fairly conservative right now. Um, the court decided that uh, the states don't have this right. Um, and it was based on the fact finding of the lower courts, which is a little bit unfortunate, because if the higher court could have considered more facts than it might have been decided a different way. Mm. But based on kind of how, how our legal system works and, and, and how the Supreme Court works uh, and the composition of the Supreme Court, um, they held that, hey, this is not disclosable to the states. Um, uh, essentially, that's the impact of it. The broader impact and why I said democracy might be uh, an issue here is because, well, what about sort of campaign finance disclosures? And what about the IRS? Should they be entitled to that information as well? So it's really helpful in compliance, but the counter argument and why some organizations, charities, were also um, not in favor of the disclosures is because of the protection of the donor. And the, the old case cited um, uh, in this part of the argument was an NAACP case that said, well, if we disclose our donors, the KKK had threatened to kill all of them. Um, and you can see why privacy was important in that issue. In this issue, it was nothing like this. I think it's a Koch brothers um, kind of funded charity. They wanted really to keep their uh, identity um, more hidden uh, because they have desires to influence politics in, in many ways. And if it always gets associated with them, then the, the impact lessens. So um, if they can look like their groundswells of movements that are funding these things rather than individual donors, um, it looks better uh, for, for what they're trying to do. So that's, you know, that's what's at stake here is not only are the states not allowed to get this information that would really help them in state law enforcement of whether there's diversion of charitable assets that benefit donors. Yeah. But in the broader sense, are we going to allow more dark money to enter into our political systems without knowing that there are donors, heavy donors that back these, you know, politicians or political parties or political movements. So that's the scary part uh, about this decision. What's the, uh, I think infamous uh, Supreme Court case that that allowed the uh, allowed the uh, dark money into uh, into politics. United uh, Citizens United. Citizens United. Yeah. Um, all right. 
All right. And so I just want to repeat. This. So this case that uh, James is talking about is Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta, B-O-N-T-A. What about uh, crowdfunding? You uh, you point out that there's a new crowdfunding law. I hope is this a little more uh, optimistic? I hope. Uh, well, depending upon how you look at it. Okay, depending so, on again. Okay. I think in, in one sense it's inevitable. Um, a, a lot of our laws that are developed regarding fundraising um, don't even ante- never anticipated the internet, right, Tony? So um, yeah. Uh, you know, now crowdfunding platform is, you know, not just the internet, use of the internet, but it's a lot of different for-profit companies getting involved um, to enable charities and organizations and people who are not charities to raise funds that look like they could be for charitable purposes, right? So you want to help victims of a fire, but you want to help them directly because some individual said, I want to start a GoFundMe campaign, right? And say, well, you know, chip in 50 bucks and let's try to get these people some help. Doesn't That doesn't go through a charity often. It just goes to this person, right? Who promises to give these other people money. Yeah, and GoFundMe. the person's uh, goodwill. And yeah, honesty. And, honesty, yeah. And GoFundMe is, you know, uh, reacted to this and they're probably the biggest crowdfunding platform. So they've reacted to this in terms of having their own internal policies to help prevent a check. But overall, there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of crowdfunding platforms out there that do this to make a profit. Um, and they may not have those type of controls uh, or checks to not uh, to just, you know, prevent somebody from saying, I'm, let's raise money to help fire victims and then just keeping it. Yeah. Um, so, well, so what's, what, what is the import of the law for, for us? So I, I think the import of the law is if you're going to get on and decide, hey, we want to do crowdfunding, um, you've got to select your platform provider carefully. And this law, which uh, is in California, but is likely to spread across different states in various forms, mm. says, well, now if you're going to do that, you've got to make sure that this crowdfunding platform is registered. Um, and they're reporting and there are all sorts of rules involved. So if you have a contract with them, it should be subject to these rules that might say things like, well, if they collect money, they have to give the money to the charity within a certain time period. Right. So they couldn't say, well, it takes this administration. So maybe a couple of years before you get that, you know, nobody's going to be happy with that. But without rules, why not? Um, so. These are. This is why it's important for charities to have rules. The actual details of the rules, uh, I could see why some people have some some issue with them, and we haven't had all of the regulations yet. They're still in discussion. So this is very, still very trending. But the crowdfunding law, the the law, the general law that's in place now, will become effective in California in 2023, and the regulations are being developed right now. Let's turn to remote work, which is obviously so much more common now. Hybrid work, you know, return to work dates are being pushed off and off. Um, what, what, are, what, are, what trends are you seeing? What, what, what should be on, we be on the lookout for with respect to uh, remote work and employment law issues? Yeah, it's, you know, this is a really tricky area. Um, you know, for sure, COVID 
where people were suddenly not permitted to to go indoors in some cases for months. Mm. Um, And who knows if, you know, we're going to return to some of those scenarios with the Omicron variant out there. We're hoping that it's less um, severe in terms of uh, its impact, even if it might be a more transmissible. But if we, if we, keep worrying uh, about this and saying, you know, our workers aren't comfortable coming to work, even if the law allows them to come to work. Um, maybe we're going to let people work remotely. And many of us have gone full remote. Some of us have gone back to partial returns. Some have gone back to full returns and then gone back, you know, out the other way and said, okay, you know, it's at the worker's discretion whether they want to come in or not. So what makes this a little bit tricky um, is that you don't control the work environment as the employer if they're working at home, right? Um, but that becomes the work environment. If they're doing work from home, that's their work environment. And, you know, the employer is responsible for the work environment if they should get hurt, for example. Um, so it becomes a little bit tricky about, well, how do you, how do you handle that for workers' comp reasons, for safety reasons, for OSHA reasons. Um, And I think there's an understanding by regulators that, you know, this is out of control of most small businesses, small charities. And, you know, to to that extent, we're not really going to look to enforce things on that level. But there are other things that that are also concerning because not everybody goes, when, when they decide to work remotely, work in the same city or in the same state. Yeah. Right. A, a lot of us um, uh, have decided to, you know, maybe move back with family, um, which might be in another state. In some cases, it could be another country um, or some of us have decided to travel and, and spend a little bit of time, you know, in different places. Um, so how does the law treat that? And basically, you know, the, the old rules, which are, are the rules many of us are stuck with, um, the old rules are, well, you have to comply with the laws where the worker is doing the work. So if you have a worker in New York who's now working remotely and came out to uh, Florida, well, then all the employment rules regarding worker safety and wage and hour laws and salary, overtime, sick pay, benefits, all the Florida laws apply to that worker now. Um, And so now it's like, well, You've got a worker in Florida. You've got to think about, are you qualified to do business in Florida? Yes. Charity registration in Florida. Um, And you may have had no connection to Florida before, but all of a sudden you have a worker working there. Um, So a few states, um, and they're not very many, but a few states had said, well, you know, during COVID, we've got these temporary rules where we're relaxed, where you don't have to do that. And there's also state tax issues, right? State payroll taxes and, and other tax. All of those things, some states said, you don't have to worry about it. A lot of organizations are simply not complying with it. <laughs> but, but you said it's only a handful of states that said we're, we're, we're not enforcing. Right, exactly. So um, the majority of states are. Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't say they're enforcing, but they haven't, the old laws or the existing laws still apply. There are no transition laws. So you're out of compliance. And if they do enforce, which might not be like a, you know, a a regulator coming out to you and saying, you haven't done this. It may be your employee is unhappy with something you've done. 
who's working there and said, hey, Florida law applies and you haven't been complying with the Florida sort of benefits laws that, that apply. And maybe I could give you a more specific example because San Francisco, if you came out to California, your remote employee came out to California, San Francisco has mandatory sick hours and not a lot, a lot of states don't have sick hour pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden, if you're not paying them and they get wind of that, hey, you were supposed to pay me for this and you haven't been it's the employee who could launch the complaint. Um, so it's just to be careful of these things. And, and just as your strategy for charity registration, Tony, when you're sort of fundraising all over the country, it's to, to you're not going to be able to maybe do all 50 states at once, but just to make sure you've got a plan to attack this, kind of the same thing here. Um, check out where your employees are. You should know exactly where they are. Uh, and check each state in terms of how strict they may be in terms of enforcing this and start to slowly comply. The implications of state law. Yeah. Okay. What about the technology remote work? Uh, I don't know if that's all been figured out yet. Maybe there were, maybe there were stopgap measures during the, during the, the darkest part of the pandemic, but, but going forward, you know, tech, the technology has to be has to be upgraded. You know, are we going to are we going to continue providing work phones? Are we going to provide work laptops? What about paying for internet access over the long term? I mean, you know, the internet access can be costly, and if 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 work is taking up a, a lot of the bandwidth, is, is it appropriate for an employer to be paying a, a portion? And then how do then how does the how does the uh, What's the mechanism for the employee verifying how much they pay, and you know, and then what percentage are we going to cover of that, and all the all the technology issues around around remote work? Yeah, def- definitely. And and as an as an employer, I would say beyond sort of any legal compliance issues, um, you've got a, I think, an ethical issue to make sure you're providing your employees with the tools to do their job. And if you're allowing remote work, you should make sure that they have the tools. So if they need a computer to be able to access it, so they're not, they're not using their personal computer, um, then you should make sure that happens. Same thing with the telephone. And if, you know, if those are going to be dedicated uh, to work, um, it should be explicitly written out that way. Um, but if you force them to use their personal Things there are some states that actually do have laws that say you, you must reimburse your your employees if they are using uh, tools that they need um, for for remote work, but just oh, ethically, yeah. But then that's then that raises security issues too. Absolutely, uh, do they have any kind of HIPAA protected information on their personal laptop? That's going to be a big problem. That that's a, I think that's probably a mistake if. If you're dealing with that kind of data, but um, and don't other, we other, probably all have that type of stuff on our personal computers, right? You know, sort of HIPAA protected. We may have have emails like that are saved onto our computers. Um, yeah, for that. ourselves, you mean? Right. So right. if if the computer is also being used for work, and there's a work issue that causes that data to be taken or, or corrupted, like you know, what's the employer's responsibility if they hadn't provided an alternative? Oh. So great point. And, and, and it's not only HIPAA data, but 
other other personalized data that that may be on now the personals the the employee's personal computer, desktop or laptop or phone. You know how is that how is that private private data protected? Do they have malware prevention on their on their personal devices? So that so that company emails that they're that they're using on their personal device aren't potentially compromised. I mean, the use of the personal equipment raises a lot of technology and and legal privacy and ethical issues too. You're right. I mean, if the person is eight or ten hours a day, they're using their personal laptop. Shouldn't there be some compensation for that? Yeah, and I think minimally, because no matter you know how much we encourage people to have sort of work dedicated computers provided by the workplace, people are going to use their personal phones. I mean, we can go back to the politicians who've all been using their yeah, personal right. phones. So yeah. we know it happens regardless of what a best practice is. But what can the employer do? They can pay for all of that data protection stuff that that computer should have, right, Tony? Because now it has much more sensitive information on there, and the employer is partly responsible for some of the other information that could be on there and hacked. So, yeah, um, employers should help. And that kind of leads us to the whole data security issue as well that everybody's got to be paying attention to now it is really um, nonprofits have important data in their system. Some of it is, you know, HIPAA protected. Some of it is other privacy information. You may have employment reviews on there that you don't want going out into the real world or client, you know, feedback, which might be positive. Some of it might be negative, sensitive communications, all sorts of stuff that you might find uh, on a work computer uh, and if it gets hacked and if that data gets stolen or if somebody holds the system, which might run your programs or aspects of your programs, if they cause your system to crash and say that they will only sort of fix it because they've hacked and caused the crash, if you pay a ransom, yeah. uh, you've got all sorts of problems. Uh, and maybe some of that may have been mitigated with some basic steps like it you know you're not going to be well even the u.s government can't prevent all hackers i think we we know that but you can take reasonable steps based on your budget whatever that might be to to control some of this so it really is important to have some safeguards another potential category of data is the gdpr data yeah if if, if your nonprofit is implicated at all in in that european uh, common law law then or the uh, yeah then then you've got those concerns as well yeah absolutely so if you have european donors or you're doing business with any european entities and you have data uh, from those entities or persons be careful and again remote working can trigger some of that so if if they decided to you know their home or or they want to travel to europe and do their work from there um all sorts of implications yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, people, very good point. Where, where people are sitting and where they're planted when they're working. It's time for Tony's Take Two. We've got 50% off the tuition for planned giving accelerator. That's because just last week, a donor stepped up, someone who believes very deeply in planned giving accelerator, and he is offering to pay 50% of the tuition for the first 
10 nonprofits that take him up on his offer. A couple have already done it as of the time I'm recording, but there are several spots left. So if you've been toying with the idea of planned giving accelerator, it's never going to be cheaper than 50% off. Uh, what The way this will work is you'll pay the tuition in full, which is $1,195 for the six-month course. This donor will then make a gift to you of half of that. So you'll have a new donor. He'll pay half your tuition. So it ends up being 50% off the full tuition cost. I know the donor. It's someone I trust. You have my word. Your final cost will be half of the full tuition. If you'd like to jump on this and be one of the members of what is now our February class, I want to give people enough time for this because it, it just came in last week. So I'm extending. We're, we're not going to start the class until February. If you'd like to be part of that February class at 50% off, send me an email. And we'll, we'll talk about planned giving accelerator and whether it can help you launch your planned giving program. Tony at tonymartinetti.com. That's me. That is Tony's take two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for legal outlook for 2022. When, and one of the tools to, to think about, and I'm a little bit guilty of this as well, um, is be careful of public Wi-Fi because um, that often is an entryway for a hacker. Yeah, those so, are totally unsecured. You're, yeah. You're, you're, uh, airports, airplanes. Coffee shops. Coffee shops, Starbucks, wherever. Th- those are all unsecured networks. Right meaning that there is the potential for somebody in there who has some malicious intent if they want to be able to hack into to your computer through that public Wi-Fi, unsecured Wi-Fi. Um, there are different systems, um, but maybe one of the simplest for, for those of us who have smartphones, which I think is most of us, is you could actually create a, a sort of a, a, a private Wi-Fi um, just uh, for your you, smartphone. Right. A uh, hotspot. Create yeah. a hotspot and don't use the unsecured Wi-Fi to connect to, uh, you know, use the, uh, the the 4G or the 5G or the 5G edge, et cetera. Um, right. And that's something an employer could pay to make sure that the employee has significant data, a data plan that can incorporate all the additional data that they may need in their plan because of the work. So again, uh, that would be reasonable and, and ethical for the nonprofit employer to pay for their employees to have a higher data plan um, if they're going to, to use that and insist as a policy that they do not use public Wi-Fi if they're using a work computer or a computer that contains work and sensitive information. All you need is to transmit an email on, on an unsecured Wi-Fi that, that has a donor's uh, credit card number, maybe, right. date of birth, address, name, any, any two of those things together. Uh, hacked could be very detrimental to that donor. And, you know, whether it ever gets traced back to you is, is uncertain, but you've, you've put your donor's privacy at risk in, in a simple email that has any two of those pieces of information. 
And it appears to be a myth um, when people have relied on, they're not going to go after us because we're nonprofits. People don't go after us. Oh, that's bullshit. Oh, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm working with a client now that, that is, a, uh, is in New York City that, that's a um, victim of a, of a malware, a, a, a ransomware, so, pardon me, a ransomware attack. Yeah. And they're keeping it quiet, so I'm not uh, permitted to say who it is, but um, yeah, they, they've they've been they've been hindered for weeks and weeks with uh, data accessibility issues. Yeah, and it's much more common than we think because organizations do want to keep it quiet because if there is a vulnerability, they don't want to come and say other hackers come come yeah. and attack yeah, us. Right. We're vulnerable, so it, and- it may be much more pervasive than we think. And that myth also breaks down along ideological lines. Yeah. Some, some person on the left may, may attack an organization on the right. Some person on the right may attack an organization on the left just because of where the organization stands with respect to the person's political and ideological beliefs. That, that, that's enough. It doesn't matter that you're a nonprofit. It's, it's your ideology and your mission. It has nothing to do with your tax-exempt status as to why somebody would or wouldn't go after you. Yeah, and um, in these times, that those ideological differences have been very um, pronounced. And yeah. yeah. All right, where else should we go, Gene? With uh, trends, trends for the new year. Come on. Um, let's talk a little bit since we're talking about technology and data security. Let's talk a little bit about cryptocurrency because I okay. find that pretty okay. fascinating. Um, there was an organization that came together and um, bid $40 million on a copy of the U.S. Constitution just a few weeks ago. Um, that money, the $40 million plus more, I think about $47 or $48 million was raised for that purpose in less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, cryptocurrency donors um, often have made a ton of money because of the appreciation of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin for for those who aren't super familiar with it. Um, And if you donate cryptocurrency, it's like donating a non-cash asset, uh, meaning that if you bought cryptocurrency for $1,000 10 years ago, and it's worth now several million dollars, which if you bought the right cryptocurrency, that might be the case. Yeah. if you sold it, uh, you would have a lot of taxes to pay on that appreciation, right? The several million dollars of appreciated uh, income that would be subject to capital gains tax. Um, so if you sold it and donated some of the proceeds, that would not be a very tax efficient way to donate. When If you donated the cryptocurrency itself, what you do is you get to take a fair market value deduction of the several million dollars. So you gave several million. So potentially you could deduct that as a charitable contribution and pay no capital gains tax because you never sold it. Um, So very tax efficient way of giving um, and cryptocurrency wealthy millionaires and and others who decided that they want to see some positive impact um, from giving these gifts uh, are are making gifts of cryptocurrency now. And that's that's partly why um, so many gathered together to say, hey, we'd like to fund a charity to buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution so that we can ensure that this Constitution is always for the public's benefit and on public 
viewership and not sitting in somebody's house, you know, for, for their own prestige. Um, but that really opens it up. Cherries, think about it. There's a lot of these people who make quite a bit of money on cryptocurrency. And a lot of younger people are investing fairly heavily in cryptocurrency now. So it's something to not sort of blow away for um, kind of our age or older, Tony, to say cryptocurrency, what is that? <laughs> It, it's it's something to really embrace now because it it's it's not just this exotic tool now it's part of regular investment portfolios absolutely it's it, it's coming and and gene this dovetails perfectly with uh our uh, november 15th show of, of 2021 bitcoin and the future of fundraising with uh, my guests were ann Connolly and jason shim who wrote a book Bitcoin in the future of fundraising. So um, it's, it's just more, more sage advice that crypto donations are coming. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. Are you going to get on board now or are you going to wait two more years and potentially be behind the curve? Um, and as Ann and Jason pointed out, today, there are so few organizations accepting crypto that a lot of people are just searching for where can I donate cryptocurrency? And probably largely, Gene, for the reasons you're describing, they're, they're looking for a direct crypto donation to help them with substantial capital gains. Uh, are there specific uh, legal implications of, of crypto donations that, that we need to be aware of? Or, or is it just, you know, you just want folks to know that th this trend is, is, is in the mid, it's happening right now. So I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why charities are afraid to take cryptos because they don't know what laws apply when they receive the crypto. They're like, what do we do with this? Um, and there are ways to easily cash that out and turn it into US cash. And in fact, most charities that accept crypto, and they're not a lot, you're right, Tony, but most charities that accept them, liquidate them immediately, turn them into cash and deposit it into fiat currency, like regular paper currency um, in their bank accounts. Um, so they're not holding on to the crypto very long at all. One of the reasons why that's, that, that can be very important is because there are prudent investor rules for charities that don't apply to for-profits that basically say, if you've got investment assets, charities, this is not just endowments, but just any sort of investment assets for reserves or for a yeah. capital fund or anything, you can't invest it speculatively. You couldn't just throw it all in like Apple stock. Um, that would be too speculative. You have to look at it uh, as uh, through what financial professionals, investment professionals call portfolio theory. Are you sufficiently... Um, uh, have an investment portfolio diversified across several different asset classes. So if one bombs, you, you haven't tanked all of your money. Um, and the board of directors have a fiduciary duty to live up to the prudent investment laws that also sort of follow this portfolio theory of how, you, how have you actually divest, uh, di sorry, um, diversify. Uh, diversify. <laughs> yeah. Um, your, your funds uh, across different investment classes to protect yourself. And there are different considerations that go along with that. Um, but that is one reason why you don't want to get stuck with all of your investments being in crypto because crypto may be one of the most volatile type of investments where it can double in a matter of days and it could tank and disappear in a matter of days as well. So depending upon 
what type of cryptocurrency you have. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of crypto types of cryptocurrency um, that have evolved in a lot of people and organizations that are making new coins all the time. So new, new forms of cryptocurrency arising. And while we talked about crypto as being a part of uh, more investment portfolios as a normal part of, of investments now, it's not every cryptocurrency that would be in that. Yeah, you know, it's these, certain some ones. Thousand, right. Some of these thousands trade for thousands of pennies. Uh, without, yeah, thousands of pennies even. You know, 0.001, three zeros and a one is, you know, is the value of the currency. Um, so... Uh, all right, that's perfect. As I said, perfect dovetail to that to that uh, that November show because you're you're raising the prudent investor rule and and uh, portfolio theory. Oh, one more thing on this, Tony. Um, the forms, the IRS forms for when you get non cash contributions of more than five hundred dollars and how quickly you sell them um, also apply. So, form eighty two eighty three is what the donor needs to sign when they give a non cash contribution of over five hundred dollar. Uh, of over $500. And if it's over $5,000, which many crypto gifts are, they have to get a qualified appraisal for this. So that's really important. And the donee, which is the charity, has to sign that form for the donor. And then if the donor, the donee, I'm sorry, the charity sells it within three years, they have to sign form 8282. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, again, it's not terribly hard. It sounds like a, a lot of just legalese I'm, I'm blabbing out, but it's not too hard. Um, but just take a quick look at those if you decide that you want to start getting cryptocurrency. And at worst, you might ask your donor to find a donor advised fund that takes crypto, turns it into cash, and then disperses it to the charity. So there are donor advised funds that do that. Interesting. Uh, okay, so so a cryptocurrency donation is a non-cash donation. Correct. Okay, and for non-cash donations of five hundred dollars or more, that's where your your donor has the implication of IRS form eighty two eighty three, and you as the charity, if you sell it within three years, which your advice is that they do because it's of its volatility then you've got the implication of IRS form 8282. I've always thought those were backwards. The donor should have 8282 because that comes first. And then comes 8283 to the donee. First the donor has it, then the charity. So it should be 8282, 8283. But it's not. It's 8283 for your donor and 8282 for you. That sounds like Larry David logic, Tony, <laughs> but that's how I think as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've been accused of being Larry David in lots of ways, including my my hair when it's long, like it is now. Um, I've been accused of looking like Larry David, but we're not complaining; we're helping. That's all right. Um, all right, let, leave us with something else. Another trend for the new year that you want us to be thinking about, Gene. Um. Let me talk a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion, since we've we've okay. talked about that in the yeah, past. You could, you could search Gene and I have talked about DEI a, a bunch of times. But yeah, but, please. You know, I, I think in combination, when we talk about the Great Migration and how the pandemic might be affecting different populations in different ways, that 
we start to think again about kind of, well, if our charity is doing some, some mission, and we might not think of that mission as being really reflective of, of specific races or, or anything like that, um, but could DEI be important anyway? And, and I think that's where we get to think about, well, if we had more perspectives in our organization, if, if we're lacking some of those perspectives now, for example, not having uh, a lot of Latinx, Hispanics, or Blacks, or Asian Americans on the board or in the leadership group, maybe yeah. we're not really thinking about how our services that we're delivering are affecting different populations differently. Maybe we're just sort of providing services, but we're focused on urban centers or urban centers where if we're center-based, our center-based is in neighborhoods that are much more accessible to uh, white populations versus other populations. So getting different perspectives, um, even if we think of ourselves as being race neutral, which is kind of a charged term, but I'll just use it for, for these purposes. If we think, some of us think of ourselves as race neutral and therefore we don't have to get involved in DEI work, we want to say, well, don't we care about serving our population in a way that's kind of fair and not just favoring one segment over other segments or just totally neglecting certain segments of the population because they don't have the same type of access? Have we ever thought about those things? And having diversity can help us think about those things. Um, but it has to be done, obviously, in an inclusive way, which we've talked about. And I know we just have a few minutes here. Um, but it's sort of, it's touching on, you know, not knowing what you don't know. Exactly. Without, without, without having the perspective of uh, diverse populations on your board, in your leadership, then you don't know how you're not serving other non-white populations. Yeah, and even when how we you're look, perceived by other by by non-white populations. Yeah, exactly. And even when we say, well, when we look at a group of people and we say diversity, you know, that has one meaning. But sometimes when we just look in our inside our own heads, uh, and when people go unconscious bias, for example, and we try to think about what that is. It's like, well, if we don't have the benefit of having different perspectives or being exposed to that all of our lives, and none of us have all of the perspectives in our lives, so. We, we're all going to be guilty of some sort of unconscious bias because we just don't know any better. We, we haven't had other information that would have um, helped develop a sensitivity or understanding or just knowledge of some of the disparities that are out there. So, and, and how our organization can be either helping those disparities or hindering them. So just getting a sense of where we'd like to go, I think that can improve employee retention. It can lead us to new areas of employee recruitment, uh, and it can make us more relevant as organizations in the future, where if we're not addressing some of these things, we could find ourselves becoming irrelevant, less attractive to future donors, especially younger donors, who this is very important to. Um, and so uh, th that's my, my closing thought all good thoughts for uh, for the new year for 2022. Gene Takagi, our legal legal contributor, managing attorney of Neo. You'll find him at nonprofitlawblog.com. He's also at GTAC, and you'll find the firm at neolawgroup.com. Gene, again, thank you very much. Happy New Year. 
Happy New Year, Tony. Great to be with you. Next week, I'm working on it very diligently. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Do you need help with any of those writing projects in 2022? Get them off your plate. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>